And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Open lines on a Friday night. It doesn't get much better than that. Let's go to Bill in Los Angeles. Hey, Bill. Welcome. Hey, George. You know, um, you're a former mainstream journalist, right? Yes. And I was wondering, you know, when I was I was listening to that interview and taking notes uh, with uh, Robert uh, Morningstar, and it occurred to me, some things occurred to me that uh, I'm a former journalist, as you know, that I would have asked him about and I've always wondered, uh, and particularly tonight, are there ever conflicts with your former mainstream journalistic uh, training and what you're trying to do on the radio with people, that, especially people that you've known for a long time? And when, when they say things that, as a journalist, you might think, hey, uh, can you back that up? But, you know, you don't really want to ask them. What, how do you deal with that conflict, or is there one? There isn't one anymore, Bill, because what I've done is I've decided for myself, because I've always been interested in the strange and unusual, to let that person have his say. Now, yes, I'd love to have evidence on certain things. There have been people who claim that they have seen aliens looking through their window. We had them take a lie detector test, and they didn't pass it. We've done things like that before, but uh, generally... It would be easy to challenge every guest we have on the program, every guest. But I don't want to do that. I want them to get their views out, to let you make up your own mind as a listener if they're telling you the truth, if they're making it up, or if it's a real story. I don't mean to suggest being you know, rude or something, because no, nobody wants to hear that. But just a, a minor example, when Mr. Morningstar said, uh, I, I think I've heard him tell this story before, that the guy behind the veil, I think he said was Kennedy, right? Yeah, he said it was JFK. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, but but a couple things. I think linguistic analysis is a really great tool, both as a journalist and as a former researcher. I, I, I've learned Greek and Hebrew to study the Bible a long time ago, and it really helps. And when he said uh, this Kennedy figure or apparition said, behold my face, don't speak of what you know. I immediately wondered, okay, did John F. Kennedy ever in his life use the term behold anything, and and why would he speak in kind of a King James Bible English type way? That That's the first clue that I would think, okay, maybe you were dreaming this, maybe it's kind of a conflation of things you read, and you were kind of sleepy, and you kind of, you know, it, I'm not saying it's false, I'm just saying it, that kind of thing makes it less believable because it just doesn't fit, you know, any any historical uh, reference that we know about. But that's perfect because that's what you believe and what you think. Somebody else may take it a different way and think, oh, my God, JFK speaking through this guy. But don't you think uh, there there is – I mean, I think you, as a former journalist, I know that you believe that some things are true – and some things are false, no matter what people feel about them. And, and you know, if if, you, if people don't believe that, they can try to walk across the street in front of a diesel truck, and they'll find out real fast that there is such a thing as facts, right? Oh, no, no, there's no question about that. There are many times I've interviewed somebody who claims that uh, they've had uh, relations with extraterrestrials. Do I believe it directly? Maybe, maybe not. But... Uh, Far be it for me to destroy that person's story. That's where I'm trying to come from. Right. Uh, but I mean, but as a, as a journalist, if, if an editor came to you and you're going to present that story, the editor would probably demand 
uh, a lot more um, uh, substantiation before publishing it. Oh, if I were writing a story on the individual, I would try to cover my bases all the way. Okay. Yeah, because there's no way an editor of, of any type of even a small newspaper would would you know he'd say, well, wait, we're not just going to ask people to believe this. They got to have you know some reason. And and don't get me wrong, I you know I've I've changed my mind about a lot of things just listening to the people on your program and uh, especially talking to uh, George Knapp's guests. I've taken a, a really hard look at a lot of what the, these people are saying. And five years ago, I would have said these are all whack job liars. And I, I do not believe that. Now, I, I think that some of them are, but I think there's a good enough percentage of these people that are legit, and, and, and mainly because there's no other explanation for what they said. So I still believe that logic and facts are on the side of everybody. And uh, sometimes they pop up a lot, too. Bill, thanks. Ed in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, Eddie. Welcome. Hey, George. Yeah, uh, I got a few things. Uh I picked up that Ian, I think he was having to live with that condition where the noise is. You he had tinnitus, yeah. And, and you know, uh, I guess it can be bad enough it'd be hard to put up with. I know uh, I don't judge any illness situation unless... Yeah, that's not uh, what that's not what did him in, though. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and, 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 and but I'm just saying... Uh, he, he commented how bad it was, and, and, you know, unless you've had something, I don't think, you know, uh, you know you, you, you have to have empathy for somebody that's going through anything like that. Um, as far as uh, Morningstar, uh, he kind of lost me tonight because he talked about interviewing Bledsoe for three hours, three hours, and he came to the conclusion that the uh, his, his experience was was negative. Uh, the the per, the thing that uh, showed up was negative, or, or a demon. Or, or the yet, the entity was negative, not yeah, the story. And and, and and that makes no sense at all because Bledsoe had a, he had a serious, horrible health condition that he he was in in the friends with the river, and he went up there to get away from them to pray to God to get rid of that illness. And this thing showed up, and when he came back, his illness was gone. I, I don't know if you're aware of that. Right. Um, and so to Mir me... Miraculously gone. Yeah. So so to me, there's something fishy about calling him a, uh, the, the, the situation a demon when he, when he, when he, they showed up and got rid of what he was praying and begging to get rid of, um... It was something else. It was a benevolent demon. Yeah, to me, yeah. It, certainly. But anyway, uh, and there was something else he said that, uh, that didn't uh, square up, in my opinion. But And then uh, uh, Cornelius, I think, uh, is absolutely right about the person, the son of that leader that was in Amos, who said that the happiest people are going to be the people in Gaza when... Uh, you know, because they're they're in a living hell every day. Those those people in there, you can't have peace unless you have a partner. Well, they their whole initial category and 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 their uh, belief system that they wrote in black and white on paper was to never give up to to kill 
Israelis and Jews, and and uh, and so you can't have a peace. Every time Israel has done that, they just take advantage by lining up ways to get to them. And um, and I think uh, Cornelius is right that. Uh, and, and another thing, I don't believe for a second thirty thousand or twenty thousand have died. I mean, it's you know these. These people are not going to tell the truth. They're going to they're going to fabricate everything they can to try to get the world against them. Uh, Anti-Semitism in our country, even before this surge here, which is horrible, I think. But before that, out of all the hate crimes classified, uh, something like two percent of the population is Jewish, and fifty percent of the hate crimes are anti-Semitic. Did you know that? Yeah, I didn't know it was that high. Yep. Anyway, uh, you do a wonderful job, as always. I've enjoyed, uh, you know, you've had a lot of good guests on uh, recently. More to come, Eddie. Yep, I know it. And uh, it's harder to catch in and get in there because I don't have automatic dollar. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you, you have a wonderful holiday yourself. You've earned it. And uh, look forward to your live program, as always. Great. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. We've got Connie Willis is going to be on Saturday and Sunday. She's excited about her Christmas Eve show. And then I'll be on live Christmas night in uh, Christmas music for bumper music, which we wait for until Christmas and Christmas Eve. I don't play it any other time, but we're going to do it this time. And uh, there's a song in there by me and uh, a friend of Tom's. And uh, we're going to be playing that as one of the bumper songs. I'll uh, point it out, though you will probably hear my voice easily. Let's go to Ruth in the state of Maryland. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, George, and thank you for taking my call. And I'm so sorry to hear about Ian, and I have a candle burning for him right now. Thank you. Prayers for him, yes. And I would like to encourage the other callers to please light a candle for him and say prayers. And I've only talked to him twice, but he answered a question for me one time that I don't think anybody else could have answered except for Barry Gordy. But um, <laughs> anyway, I wanted, to talk, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about something that Cornelius mentions a lot. Um, and are you, the uh, Ruthie who, are you the Ruthie who got him a C-Crane radio as a present? No, but I need to get me one of those because I'm listening to you on an old Bose, and I have to switch stations all the time. I don't, you know, I don't even own a TV or anything. Okay, so I need to get a C crane. I really you, need to get. You want the C C radio two E, by the way. Okay. Just remember. But, um, I wanted to talk to you about um, America's most hated woman. Well, at the time she was, but not now. She probably wouldn't be. She'd probably be very embraced right now, but. Um, I wanted to talk to you and tell you a little story, too, about the prayer being taken out of school. Madeline Murray O'Hara. Who was killed by one of her employees. Yes, she was killed by her own people. She was kidnapped by the atheists and killed by her own people. And anyway, um, that happened in Baltimore. You know, I grew up there. That's right. And it actually happened the year before I was born. And I was born in 64. It happened in 63. My brother is five years older than me. My father, um, he was 60 when I was born, so he retired. He bought and sold used books, and he was a book dealer. And anyway, my brother, I didn't know this until after my father died, or I would have asked him about it, but my brother told me that when he was young, I think it was probably before I was born, he was probably four or five, um, that my father, he took my brother with him, and he went to her house and sold her a book. He sold Madeline Murray 
O'Hara a book. And I'm always, I'm curious, I'm trying to do some research on it now. I'm curious, like, what book did he sell her? And did it have something to do with that Supreme Court decision? Because even though my father was definitely a Christian, he was a hardcore German Lutheran, but um, he had all kinds of books, you know what I mean? He had all kinds of different books. And somebody, I don't even know how she got a hold of him, maybe somebody on one of the other book dealers mentioned mentioned them or something but i'm curious about that and her son i think you probably know is a christian and he's head of the christian coalition william murray yeah and do you have you ever done a show on this george do you think you could do a show on it one time maybe get him on there have you ever done a show on this i would interview him especially if he could talk a lot about his mother yeah he has a book called um my life without god but he changed Yes, he's a Christian. He's the head of the Christian coalition. That's right. I wonder wonder what his mother would be saying to him right now. Oh, she disowned him after he turned Christian. And that was, yeah, she she had that. She's been a Christian for years. But um, I was just wondering if you had ever done a show on that. I I have not. Not at this point. It would be a good show, though. Worth looking into. We'll take care of that, Ruthie. I'll see if I, I'm, in, I'm trying to do some research and get a hold of him. If I can, I'll see if I can talk to him. But, okay, keep in touch. Okay, thank you, and have a nice holiday, George. I can't wait to talk to Connie because I have a six-foot pendulum to tell her about. <laughs> yep, she's on Saturday and Sunday, and I'll be back on Monday, Christmas night. It'll be a quick holiday. Scott in uh, Costa Mesa, California. Hey, Scotty, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Peace and love to everybody, and RIP to Ian. Thank you. They they say death is hardest on the living, and, you know, Ian, Ian is the lucky one. He's in a better place, if you will. He was in a lot of pain. He was suffering, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Not well, anymore. You, know, you, you opened the show with Heidi and about shadow people and the hat man, and I had an experience back in 92. What happened? I'm, well, I'm wondering if I could switch to a different topic with... Uh, and save that for another person when Heidi's on. Because you had a gentleman who called about the bee swarm that came through his backyard. Yeah, day. yeah, he thought they were little drones, maybe. He wasn't sure. Well, yeah. So I'm a naturalist, and my late cousin was an entomologist, and so I'm very into nature and stuff. And his definition or sort of his experience sort of led me to believe that they were carpenter bees. They're, they're about the size of a quarter, and they could be either jet black or a golden sort of uh, mustard color. Do they fly and, in unison like that? Well, it's a courtship dance. And they are. It, I've experienced it, and it is something that is really strange to witness because they are very methodical in how the distance from each other that they are, that it, it, it seems... unworldly like it doesn't seem natural that these things that usually fly around sort of haphazardly can have that coordination with one another and it's it's a beautiful thing to see but it is very strange can you hear them buzzing along yes yes and they're they're much bigger say than the like the um uh, the european honeybee because their wings are much bigger so it is um much more of a, a drone sound or a buzz sound. So I, I just want him to just know that it wasn't anything nefarious. It was something in nature 
that had happened. That's an interesting take. Hey, thanks for that uh, feedback. Let's go to Taxi Steve in Albany, New York. Hello, Stephen. Hi, George. I hope I have enough time. Um, Ian came to Albany one time, the Albany area, and he was at... I have two things, two things. Um, And he was uh, at a retreat nearby, came to the uh, WRGB, uh, wrong station, WGY, and did his show there. At the end of his show, he told everybody that he was going to have... breakfast at the 76 diner okay and gave out an invite and i was one of the six people that showed up uh and met ian personally good guy he was a good guy and had breakfast with him and shortly thereafter uh i came on um it was pouring rain i came on a an accident on the highway and it was the owner of the uh 76 diner. Oh, my gosh. He he died? Yes. He, I don't know what, what killed him, but, um, we were under a bridge. It was pouring rain. We were under a bridge. A trooper and I found him and I, I pronounced him deceased. Um, uh, he was too cold for me to say that uh, I could resuscitate him through, um, you know, means but uh uh into the eulogy on him how bizarre okay sec second thing have you ever thought about doing like about an hour and giving one of us in the audience one of our uh regulars for certain i i did a radio show myself a couple of them and giving us uh, uh a guest seat on your show we have talked about it in the past about certain callers who are out there uh about interviewing them back and forth for a lengthy time rather than just like a two-minute open line like that. So the answer to that is yes. Have we done it yet? No, we have not. Are we still contemplating it? Yes, we are. I assume you'd like to put yourself on, on the list as uh, as one of those people, would you not? I would guess. Well, I think he's gone, but uh, we're going to come back in a moment with a subject matter that Ian would be very impressed with, a little bit of strangeness in just a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And by the way, thank you for all the emails again, folks. I can't get to all of you to send them back, but uh, we do appreciate them when you send them. This is for Ian. What do esoteric and occult themes have in common with the music group Blondie, writer and musician Gary Lockman? tells us all. Gary, welcome to the show. This is a treat. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. When you, your music career and this career, two distinct, incredible careers, how did you transition, how did you do that transition from one to the other? This is amazing. Um, Well, I first became interested in the sorts of things I write about when I was playing in Blondie. Um, back back in uh, 1975, which uh, dates dates me quite a bit. <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, I was living on uh, the Bowery in New York with uh, Debbie Harry and uh, Chris Stein was a guitarist. We were in a dilapidated loft space, not far from uh, the club CBGB, where all the bands from New York scene were playing. And um, one of the people who shared this loft space with with us 
was very interested in the occult and in magic and in uh, the uh, sort of dark magician Aleister Crowley in particular. And I just became sort of um, interested in it from, from being around these people. And there was one book in particular that I read at the time. Uh, it was called simply The Occult, and it was by a British writer named Colin Wilson uh, who wrote quite a bit about it. And I just became fascinated with it and started reading about it. And then over the years, what began as a kind of you know naive, enthusiastic um, you know interest in this kind of thing gradually became what I hope is uh, more of a kind of serious study. And it took a long time. I didn't start writing until the early 90s. I mean, when I, I dropped out of music uh, in the early 80s and uh, went through a kind of career change, uh, thought I was going to be uh, academic for a while. Um, that didn't work out. But by the early 90s, I started writing about these things with different magazines. And uh, that gradually turned into writing books about it. And you're very prolific. How many books? Now? I mean, the secret teachers of the Western world would make, would make what number? Uh, I think I'm just I think I'm just one one short of twenty. That's amazing. So I'm I'm yeah yeah I'm working on a book now uh, precisely about this British writer Colin Wilson who died uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so that I think that will be my twentieth book. Knock on wood. Our dear friend Mitch yeah, Horowitz uh, thinks so. I, I was I'm reading the quote that he has written here uh, on your book, and he's just been a great guest of ours for so many years, Gary. Uh, he's a great guy. Oh yeah, no, Mitch is very good. Well, he's he's uh, he's he's an editor at uh, at uh, Penguin Torture, who who publishes me. Yep. And so we've had a long we've had a long uh, you know working relationship. And uh, no, he he he's a, he's a, he's a very insightful writer about these sorts of things as well. I want to spend just a little time talking about the band Blondie as we lead into your work here, uh, the Secret Teachers of the Western World, in the couple hours that we've got you. What was the moment, that deciding moment, Gary, when when the band knew we hit it big? Um, well, I guess, I mean, I, I played with them early on, the early days, um, 75, 77, uh, the first couple albums. Uh, and, um, you know, in the early days, we played in New York, and we were, we were the band least likely to succeed. I mean, we were <laughs> fourth on the bill. You know, we were... Uh, Basically, we got gigs because people like looking at Debbie. Yeah. Um, you know, we, but uh, no, uh, what had happened was in uh, early 1976, um, we hunkered down in our loft space and um, we spent a couple months uh, working on new material and rehearsing and really getting our act together, literally. And then uh, we started doing shows and it was a transformed Blondie and we were a much better band. And we started uh, attracting a lot more um, attention, and the, the whole New York scene in general was attracting more people from, you know, sort of the the, the tri-state area. People from Connecticut and, and Jersey were coming over to the Bowery and hanging out. Um, and um, a song I wrote actually uh, was called "Ex Offender," mm-hmm. the first Blondie single. Uh, that that got the attention of a producer named Richard Gotterer, who had been around since the 1960s. Uh, he wrote my boyfriend's back. It was a big uh, oh sure yeah song in the early 60s uh and i think he also produced hang on sleepy and and you know hits from that that era now he came down uh because you know, all these kind of people the suits were starting coming from uptown you know they wouldn't go down you know past 23rd street but then they started because the you know the rock press started writing about the scene uh new york and bands like the ramones and patty smith and talking heads and so they started to come down and um, they just heard Debbie, and they thought, "Oh, this is it! You know, uh, you know, this is this is a good song." And it was it was um, 
it was a period when um, kind of people were getting back to the roots of rock. You know, that went through a long patch where you had these sort of uh, supergroups and these kind of operatic, you know, bands like Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer. And I think people were getting a bit tired of this kind of, you know, overblown, big Wagnerian kind of sound, and they were looking for something simpler. And that's what was happening there. And, uh, yeah, that's what happened. Richard Goddard assigned us to do a single. Uh, we did a single, My Song, Ex Offender. And uh, it kind of took off from there. Did you uh, did you ever make the TV scene, with, like the Ed Sullivan Show or American Bandstand? the Ed Sullivan Show, but there was something called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert that was on... Uh, Late at night on Friday nights, and um, I, I I I did that, and there was a, a couple others. I mean, it's quite some time ago now, but I, I actually I actually wrote a book about it. I wrote a book called New York Rocker: My Life in the Blank Generation, and it's about my my years playing in Blondie. And I, I also played with Iggy Pop uh, for a while. Uh, He's sort of the grandfather of punk rock. You know, he was you know, the group called Iggy and the Stooges in the late '60s, and he worked with people like David Bowie and. Uh, Wrote about that, and then I had I had my own band for a while. So yeah, there's a book New York Rocker that covers from about 1974 to 1981 when I was uh, um, you know running around playing playing rock music. Yeah, that's fascinating. We're still dear friends with uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, and uh, All right. great guitarist that he is. Great guitarist. Yes. Uh, it, so this 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 transition then, while you were doing this, because as you said, you were interested in the occult. Uh, really, all your life, as you made this tra- this this transition, tell me about the title, "The Secret Teachers of the Western World," because this is very important. Uh, well, actually, a friend suggested the title because we would we uh, she said uh, she was saying how there isn't one book sort of bringing together. Um, the story of what you what we what you want to call the esoteric tradition or the Western inner tradition. Um, give me a little background on that. It's like from about the 60s, people dissatisfied with sort of Western religion, mm-hmm. Western philosophies, look to the East for some some kind of enlightenment, look to Eastern philosophies, Buddhism or Hinduism and so on, uh, for some kind of spirituality. But uh, in the West itself, there's a whole tradition of this, but it's been more or less obscured. Uh, or kind of uh, presented in rather, uh, I don't know, kitschy kind of scary ways as sort of uh, the occult or, you know, Satanism or something like that. But there's actually a a long tradition of this kind of inner spirituality within the West itself. And um, the idea was that although the mainstream philosophies and basically science and mainstream philosophy has basically tried to uh, ignore this, or to uh, dismiss it completely as a superstition, it nevertheless has informed all of Western culture uh, for the last, you know, couple thousand years, more or less. And so that's why the, it's the secret teachers, the secret in the sense that they're not that well known, uh, or they've been obscured, hidden, or what they actually teach is kind of secret. And that's that's another meaning of the word esoteric. It really means inner, but it also has this connotation of being something that's. You know, it's slightly hidden, something that you actually have to kind of work towards a bit to find. And um, that was the idea. The idea was to show, tell the story of this tradition. And in the book itself, I I look at it in the context of, uh, jump, jumping ahead a little bit here, I look at it in the context of, of um, developments in split-brain 
psychology. You, you, you and your, your, your listeners may know that we have, you know, our the, the, the human brain, the, mm-hmm. the cerebral cortex is separated into two hemispheres. And over the years, we discovered that uh, they, they actually approach and interact with the world in very different ways. And um, there's a wonderful book that came out a few years ago called The Master and His Emissary by a neuroscientist who's also an English scholar uh, named Ian McGilchrist. And he basically rebooted the whole split-brain story, uh, showing that the two sides of the brain, while they may do the same sorts of things, they do them in very different ways. But he also argued that there's a kind of rivalry between them, that the two sides are kind of in competition with each other. And he argued that in the last few centuries, the left side of the brain, which is associated with logic and analysis and, and rational thought and sequential sort of thought, has gained the upper hand. And this older, more intuitive, more sort of poetic, um, even more mystical, we might say, kind of way of approaching uh, reality and understanding it has been sort of dismissed and obscured. And that's that's the sort of the, the narrative that I'm saying in the book, is that this whole other tradition that's part of our whole heritage, and it's actually part of our own psychology, has been kind of obscured and um, kind of pushed out of the picture, airbrushed out of the picture by this other uh, mode of consciousness that's gained gained more dominance. So I try to show that, you know, uh, even though it's been kind of sold short and painted in this kind of picture of being sort of silly superstition, it's nevertheless informed, you know, people from Shakespeare and Goethe and the Renaissance and Plato and all of the sort of, you know, many of the great figures of Western culture. What what would these people be saying today, Gary, with what's happening on this planet right now? I mean, uh, just unbelievable. We had that. <laughs> they'd be saying "Oy vey. My God! <laughs> they'd be shaking their head, saying, "What you know? What 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 went what went wrong?" Yeah. Uh, but I think they'd also be trying to figure out if there was some way we can approach it uh, to understand it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that 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 is one big question there. And, uh, you know, it would be very, very difficult to encapsulate quickly what they would be saying. But uh, uh, I think many of them would be saying that uh, perhaps if we didn't leave this whole other side of ourselves out, this whole other um, more intuitive way of approaching the world, it uh, might not be quite uh, quite as bad as it is. But, yes, it's we're, we're in pretty bad shape these days. I, I think, you know, and I've been around since your blondie days as a matter of fact mm. so we, I've, I've witnessed so many things happening on this planet from you know vietnam uh mm. ken kennedy's assassination i was 13 years old when that happened uh and we've just seen so many things happen on this planet but at this point right now i've never seen the planet so topsy-turvy uh it, it's almost as if these leaders don't know how to lead anymore and that everything is well, run I, amok. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, no, that's not. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not surprised you say that. Um, in fact, one of the themes I talk about in the book is um, this idea that this dominant, sort of rational, logical, scientific. I mean, for sake, I'm, all, all these words are in sort of quotation marks. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in generality. Yeah, I understand. It's starting to break down. It's starting to kind of come apart uh, and sort of deconstruct itself. And I think one of the results of that is that we do we are living in this time which seems it seems a great deal of chaos. So there seems a lot of conflicting goods, you know, different things that we're trying to achieve, but they 
uh, they're, they're conflicting with each other. So they're sort of negating each other. And I'm not surprised that the people, you know, who are supposed to be leading, you know, uh, the world, the nations of the world, that they're, they're just as confused as everybody else. Um, and, yes, it's a, it's a dangerous time. Now, the hope is that out of this kind of time of chaos and mess and confusion, something something new, some some new revitalized vision may emerge. But exactly what that's going to be, uh, I don't think anybody knows at the moment. No, no it, it, it's just very strange. You know, when you look at the, the groups like ISIS and you try to figure mm-hmm. out how did they get created, who created them, where did they get their weapons, how did they have oil fields, who buys the oil mm-hmm. and the banks? What mm-hmm. banks are they putting their money in? Shut them, shut yeah. them all down. Um, yeah, well, that's it. Somebody, you know, somebody's making money from it. I guess that's when you get the virtual Brecht, you know, said a long time ago, money makes the world go around. That's so true. I think that's uh, probably somebody. Somebody's making money from it. Sadly, someone's making money from you know pain and suffering and and torture and barbarism. These these teachers in the Western world. Were they widely accepted, or did they have to do a lot of their work undercover? Well, at different times. See, that's one of the the surprising things if you look into this, is that um, a great deal of the types of ideas and philosophies that um, contemporary sort of mainstream thinking rejects the superstitious were at one time um, accepted and were, in fact, prestigious. Now, I'll give you one example. <clears throat> Excuse me. One sure. example is that um, Isaac Newton, you know, the father of modern science, mm-hmm. father of the modern world, basically, uh, discovered gravity. Uh, he wrote more about alchemy than he did about gravity. Uh, he wrote more about what was called the occult sciences at the time when he was working uh, in the early 1700s. Occult just means hidden. Um, and it's the same principle as when we have an eclipse, when the, sort of the moon passes between the Earth and the, and the sun. It occludes the sun. So it's something that obscures something, it, it you know, hides something. So the occult just basically means the unseen. For Dan Galanti, Gina Salvati, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Latasor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burrows... Jeremy Wells, Tim Benal, George Knapp, and our dear friend Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.